The Golden Bell, Volume 1, The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 1, by James Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Section 4, Chapter 3, Sympathetic Magic, Subchapter 2, Homeopathic or Imitative Magic, Part 2. Sympathetic Magic to Ensure Food Supply Further, homeopathic and in general sympathetic magic plays a great part in the measures taken by the rude hunter or fisherman to secure an abundant supply of food. On the principle that like produces like, many things are done by him and his friends in deliberate imitation of the result which he seeks to attain, and, on the other hand, many things are scrupulously avoided because they bear some more or less fanciful resemblance to others which would really be disastrous. Sympathetic Use of Sympathetic Magic in Central Australia Nowhere is the theory of sympathetic magic more systematically carried into practice for the maintenance of the food supply than in the barren regions of Central Australia. Here the tribes are divided into a number of totem clans, each of which is charged with the duty of propagating and multiplying their totem for the good of the community by means of magical ceremonies and incantations. In Tichuma, or Magical Ceremonies for the Increase of the Totemic Animals and Plants in Central Australia. The great majority of the totems are edible animals and plants, and the general results supposed to be accomplished by these magical totemic ceremonies, or in Tichuma, as the Arunta call them, is that of supplying the tribe with food and other necessaries. Often the rites consist of an imitation of the effect which the people desire to produce. In other words, their magic is of the homeopathic or imitative sort. Wichity Grub Ceremony Thus among the Arunta, the men of the Wichity Grub Totem perform a series of elaborate ceremonies for multiplying the grub which the other members of the tribe use as food. One of the ceremonies is a pantomime representing the fully developed insect in an act of emerging from the chrysalis. A long narrow structure of branches is set up to imitate the chrysalis case of the grub. In this structure, a number of men, who have the grub for their totem, sit and sing of the creature in its various stages, then they shuffle out of it in a squatting posture, and as they do, they sing of the insect emerging from the chrysalis. This is supposed to multiply the numbers of the grubs. Emu Ceremony Again, in order to multiply emus, which are an important article of food, the men of the emu totem in the Arunta tribe proceed as follows. They clear a small spot of the ground, and opening veins in their arms, they let the blood stream out until the surface of the ground, for a space of about three square yards, is soaked with it. When the blood is dried and caked, it forms a hard and fairly impermeable surface, on which they paint the sacred design of the emutotum, especially the parts of the bird which they like best to eat, namely the fat and the eggs. Round this painting the men sit and sing. Afterwards, performers, wearing headdresses to represent the long neck and small head of the emu, mimic the appearance of the bird as it stands aimlessly peering about in all directions. Hakia Flower Ceremony Again, men of the Hakia Flower Totem in the Arunta tribe perform a ceremony to make the Hakia tree burst into blossom. The scene in the ceremony is a little hollow, by the side of which grows the ancient Hakia tree. In the middle of the hollow is a small worn block of stone, supposed to represent a mass of hakia flowers. Before the ceremony begins, an old man of the totem carefully sweeps the ground clean, then stokes the stone all over with his hands. 
after that the men sit round the stone and chant invitations to the tree to flower much and to the blossoms to be filled with honey finally at the request of the old leader one of the young men opens a vein in his arm and lets the blood flow freely over the stone while the rest continue to sing the flow of blood is supposed to represent the preparation of the favourite drink of the natives which is made by steeping the kea flower in water as soon as the stone is covered with blood the ceremony is complete kangaroo ceremony again the men of the kangaroo totem in the Arunta tribe perform ceremonies for the multiplication of kangaroos at a certain rocky ledge which in the opinion of the natives is full of the spirits of kangaroos ready to go forth and inhabit kangaroo bodies a little higher up on the hillside are two blocks of stone which represent a male and female kangaroo respectively at the ceremony these two blocks are rubbed with a stone by two men then the rocky ledge below is decorated with alternate vertical stripes of red and white to indicate the red fur and white bones of the kangaroo after that a number of young men sit on the ledge open veins in their arms and allow the blood to spurtle over the edge of the rock on which they are seated this pouring out of the blood of the kangaroo men on the rock is thought to drive out the spirits of the kangaroo in all directions and so to increase the number of the animals while it is taking place the other men sit below watching the performers and singing songs refer to the expected increase of kangaroos grass seed ceremony in the Katish tribe when the headman of the grass seed totem wishes to make the grass grow he takes two sacred sticks or stones charinga of the well-known borer pattern smears them with red ochre and decorates them with lines and dots of down to represent grass seed he then rubs the sticks or stones together so that the down flies off in all directions the down is supposed to carry with it some virtue from the sacred stick or stone whereby the grass seed is made to grow for days afterwards the headman walks about by himself in the bush singing the grass seed and carrying one of the sacred bull roarers Chiringa, with him at night he hides the implement in the bush and returns to camp where he may have no intercourse with his wife but during all this time he is believed to be so full of magic power derived from the bull roarer that if he had intercourse with her the grass seed would not grow properly and his body would swell up when he tasted of it when the seed begins to grow he still goes on singing to make it grow more but when it is fully grown he brings back the sacred implement to his camp hidden in bark and having gathered a store of the seed he leaves it with the men of the other half of the tribe saying you eat the grass seed in plenty it is very good and grows in my country mana ceremony a somewhat similar ceremony is performed by men of the mana totem in the arunta tribe for the increase of their totem this manna is a product of the mulga tree, Acacia anura, and resembles a better-known sugar manna of gum trees. When the men of the totem wish to multiply the manna, they resort to a great boulder of grey rock, curiously streaked with black and white seams, which is thought to represent a mass of manna, deposited there long ago by a man of the totem. The same significance is attributed to other smaller stones which rest on the top of the boulder. The headman of the totem begins the ceremony by digging up a sacred bullroarer, Cheringa, which is buried in the earth at the foot of the boulder. It is supposed to represent a lump of manna, and to have lain there ever since the remote El Karinga, or dream time, the farthest part of which these savages have any conception. Next, the headman climbs to the top of the boulder and rubs it with the bullroarer, and after that he takes the smaller stones, and with them rubs the same spot on the boulder. Meantime, the other men, sitting round about 
chant loudly an invitation to the dust produced by the rubbing of the stones to go out and generate a plentiful supply of manna on the mulga trees finally the twigs of the mulga of the leader sweeps away the dust which is gathered on the surface of the stone his intention is to cause the dust to settle on the mulga trees and so produce manna euro ceremony again in a rocky gorge of the murchison range there are numbers of little heaps of rounded water-worn stones carefully arranged on beds of leaves and hidden away under piles of rougher quartzite blocks in the opinion of the waramanga tribe these rounded stones represent euros that is a species of kangaroo according to their size they stand for young or old male or female euros any old man of the euro totem who happens to pass the spot may take the stones out smear them with red ochre and rub them well this is supposed to cause the spirits of euros to pass out from the stones and to be born as animals thus increasing the food supply cockatoo ceremony again in the waramunga tribe messrs spencer and gillen saw and heard a ceremony which is believed to multiply white cockatoos to a wonderful extent from ten o'clock one evening until after sunrise next morning the headman of the white cockatoo totem held in his hand a rude effigy of the cockatoo and imitated the harsh cry of the bird with exasperating monotony all night long when his voice failed him his son took up the call and relieved the old man until such time as his father was rest enough to begin again homeopathic or imitative character of these rites in this last ceremony the homeopathic or imitative character of the rite is particularly plain the shape of the bird which is to be multiplied is mimicked by an effigy its cry is imitated by the human voice in others of the ceremonies just described the homeopathic principle works by means of stones which resemble in shape the edible animals or plants that the natives desire to increase we shall see presently that the melanesians similarly attribute fertilizing virtues to stones of certain shapes use of human blood in these ceremonies meantime it deserves to be noticed that in some of these australian rites for the multiplication of the totemic animals the blood of the men of the totem plays an important part similarly in a ceremony performed by men of the diary tribe for the multiplication of carpet snakes and iguanas the performers wound themselves and the blood that drips from their wounds is poured on a sandhill in which the mythical ancestor is believed to be buried and from which carpet snakes and iguanas are confidently expected to swarm forth again with the headman of the fish totem in the wonkongaru tribe desires to make fish plentiful he paints himself all over with red ochre and taking little pointed bones goes into a pool there he pierces his scrotum and the skin around the navel with the bones and sits down the water the blood from the wounds as it mingles with the water is supposed to give rise to fish in all these cases clearly a fertilizing virtue is described to human blood the description is interesting and may possibly go some way to explain the widely spread custom of voluntary wounds and mutilations in religious or magical rites it may therefore be worth even at the cost of a digression to ensure a little more closely into the custom as it practiced by the rude savages of australia blood poured into graves in the first place then the dairy custom of pouring blood over the supposed remains of the ancestor in his sandhill closely resembles the custom observed by some of the australian aborigines at the graves of their relatives thus among the tribes on the river darling several men used to stand by the open grave and cut each other's heads with the boomerang then hold their bleeding heads over the grave so that the blood dripped on the corpse at the bottom of it 
if the deceased was highly esteemed the bleeding was repeated after some earth had been thrown on the corpse among the aranta it is customary for the women and kingsfolk to cut themselves at the grave so that blood flows upon it again at the vase river in western australia before the body was lowered into the grave the natives used to gash their thighs and at the flowing of the blood they all said i have bought blood and they stamped the foot forcibly on the ground sprinkling the blood around them then wiping the wounds with a wisp of leaves they threw it all bloody on the dead man after that they let the body down into the grave blood given to the sick and aged further it is a common practice with the central australians to give human blood to the sick and aged for the purpose of strengthening them and in order that the blood may have this effect it need not always be drunk by the infirm person it is enough to sprinkle it on his body for example a young man will often open a vein in his arm and let the blood trickle over the body of an older man in order to strengthen his aged friend and sometimes the old man will drink a little of the blood so in illness the blood is sometimes applied outwardly as well as inwardly the patient both drinking it and having it rubbed over his body sometimes apparently he only drinks it the blood is drawn from a man or woman who is related to the sufferer either by blood or marriage and the notion always is to convey to the sick person some of the strength of the blood giver in the wimbeo tribe if a man had nearly killed his wife in a paroxysm of rage the woman was laid on the ground and the husband's arms being tightly bound above the elbows the medicine man opens his veins in them and allow the blood to flow on the prostrate body of the victim till the man grew faint the intention of thus bleeding the man all over the woman was apparently to restore her to life by means of the blood drawn from her assailant blood used by an avenging party again before an avenging party starts to take the life of a distant enemy all the men stand up open their veins and their genital organs with sharp flints or pointed sticks and allow the blood to spurt all over each other's thighs the ceremony is supposed to strengthen the men mutually and also to knit them so closely together that treachery henceforth becomes impossible sometimes for the same purpose blood is drawn from the arm and drunk by the men of the avenging party and if one of them refuses thus to pledge himself the others will force his mouth open and pour the blood into it after that even he wishes to play the traitor and to give the doomed man warning he cannot do so he is bound by a physical necessity to side with the avengers whose blood he has swallowed blood of circumcision and circumcision uses made of it further it is worth while to notice some uses made of human blood in connection with the ceremonies of circumcision and circumcision which all lads of the central australian tribes have to undergo before they are recognised as full-grown men for example the blood drawn from them at these operations is caught in a hollow shield and taken to certain kinsmen or kinswomen who drink it or have it smeared on their breasts and foreheads the motive of this practice is not mentioned but on the analogy of the preceding customs we may conjecture that it is to strengthen the relatives who partake of the blood this interpretation is confirmed by analogos used in queensland of the blood drawn from a woman at the operation which in the female sex corresponds to subincision in the male for that blood mixed with another ingredient is kept and drunk as a medicine by any sick person who may be in the camp at the time moreover it is corroborated by a similar use of the foreskin which has been removed by circumcision for among the southern arunta this piece of skin is given to the younger brother of the circumcised lad and he swallows it in the belief that it will make him grow strong and tall
In the tribe at Fowler's Bay, who practice both circumcision and subincision, the severed foreskin is swallowed by the operator, perhaps in order to strengthen the lad sympathetically. In some tribes in northwest Australia, it is the lad himself who swallows his own foreskin mixed with kangaroo flesh, while in other tribes of the same region, the severed portion is taken by the relations and deposited under the bark of a large tree. The possible significance of this latter treatment of the foreskin will appear presently. Among the Kolkudoons of Cloningley in northern Queensland, the foreskin is strung on twine made of human hair, and is then tied round the mother's neck to keep off the devil. In the Warramunga tribe, the old men draw blood from their own subincised urethras in presence of the lads, who a few days before have undergone the operation of subincision. The object of this custom, we are told, is to promote the healing of the young men's wounds and to strengthen them generally. It does not appear that the blood of the old men is drunk by or smeared upon the youths. Seemingly, it is supposed to benefit them sympathetically without direct contact. Anodynes based on the principle of homeopathic magic. A similar action of blood at a distance may partially explain a very singular custom observed by the Arunta women at the moment when a lad has been subincised. The operation is performed at a distance from, but within hearing of the women's camp. When the boy is seized in order to be operated on, the men of the party raise a loud shout of Pierru. At that sound, the women immediately assemble in their camp, and the boy's mother cuts gashes across the stomach and shoulders of the boy's sisters, her own elder sisters, and old women who furnish the boy with a sacred fire at circumcision and all the women whose daughters he would be allowed to marry, and while she cuts, she imitates a sound made by the men who are subincising her son. These cuts generally leave behind them a definite series of scars. They have a name of their own, Urpuna, and are often resembled by definite lines on the bulwarders. What the exact meaning of this extraordinary ceremony may be, I cannot say, but perhaps one of its supposed effects may be to relieve the boy's pain by transferring it to his womenkind. In like manner, when the Warramunga men are fighting each other with blazing torches, the women burn themselves with light twigs in the belief that by doing so they prevent the men from inflicting serious injuries to each other. The theory further receives some support from certain practices formerly observed by the natives inhabiting the coast of New South Wales. Before lads had their noses bored, the medicine men threw themselves into contortions on the ground, and after pretending to suffer great pain, were delivered of bones, which were to be used at the ceremony of nose-boring. The lads were told that the more the medicine men suffered, the less pain they themselves would feel. Again, among the same natives, when a woman was in labour, a female friend would tie one end to the cord round the sufferer's neck and rub her own gums with the other end till they bled, possibly in order to draw away the pain from the mother to herself. For a similar reason, perhaps, in Samoa, the blood was being drawn from a virgin bride. Her friends, young and old, beat their heads with stones till they bled. Fertilizing virtue attributed to blood of circumcision and subincision. Lastly, in some tribes, the blood shed at the circumcision and subincision of lads is collected in paper bark and buried in the bank of a pool where water lilies grow. This is supposed to promote the growth of the lilies. Needless to say, this rude attempt at horticulture is not prompted by a simple delight in contemplating these beautiful bright blue flowers which bloom in the Australian wilderness, decking the surface of pools by countless thousands. The savages feed on the stems and roots of the lilies. That is why they desire to cultivate them. 
fertilizing virtue attributed to foreskin and the last practice of fertilizing virtue is clearly attributed to the blood of circumcision and subincision the anula tribe who among others observed the custom obviously ascribe the same virtue to the severed foreskin for they bury it also by the side of the pool the warramunga entertain the same opinion of this part of the person for they place a foreskin in a hole made by a witchetty grub in a tree believing that it will cause a plentiful supply of these edible grubs among the unmatura the custom is somewhat different but taken in connection with their traditions it is even more significant the boy puts his severed foreskin on a shield covers it up with a broad spear thrower then carries it in the darkness of night lest any woman should see what he is doing to a hollow tree in which he deposits it he tells no one where he has hidden it except a man who stands to him in the relation of father sister son nowadays there is no special relation between the boy and the tree but formerly the case seems to have been different for according to tradition the early mythical ancestors of the tribe placed their foreskins in their nanja trees that is in their local totem trees the trees from which their spirits came forth at birth and to which they would return after death belief of the central australian tribes in the reincarnation of the dead if it seems highly probable such a custom as that recorded by the tradition ever prevailed his intention could hardly be any other than that of securing the future birth and reincarnation of the owner of the foreskin where he should have died and his spirit returned to its abode in the tree for among all these central tribes the belief is firmly rooted that the human soul undergoes an endless series of reincarnations the living men and women of one generation being nothing but the spirits of their ancestors come to life again and destined to be themselves reborn in the persons of their descendants during the interval between two incantations the souls live in their nanja spots or local totem centres which are always natural objects such as trees or rocks each totem clan has a number of such totem centres scattered over the country there are the souls of the dead men and women of the totem but of no other congregate during their disembodied state and thence they issue and are born again in human form where a favourable opportunity presents itself it might well be thought that a man's new birth would be facilitated if in his lifetime he could lay upon a stock of vital energy for the use of his disembodied spirit after death that he did apparently by detaching a portion of himself namely the foreskin and deposited it in the nanja tree or rock or whatever it might be circumcision perhaps intended to ensure a reincarnation is it possible that in this belief and this practice we have the long lost key to the meaning of circumcision in other words can it be that circumcision was originally intended to ensure the rebirth at some future time of the circumcised man by disposing of the severed portion of his body in such a way as to provide him with a stock of energy on which his disembodied spirit could draw when the critical moment of reincarnation came round the conjecture is confirmed by the observation that among the akikyuu of british east india the ceremony of circumcision used to be regularly combined with the graphic pretense of rebirth enacted by the novice if this should prove to be intended a clue to the meaning of circumcision it would be natural to look for an explanation of subincision along the same lines subincision possibly also designed to secure rebirth now we have seen that the blood of subincision is used both to strengthen relatives and to make water lilies grow hence we may conjecture that the strengthening and fertilizing virtue of the blood was applied like the foreskin of circumcision to lay up a store of energy in the nanja spot against the time when the man's feeble ghost would need it
the intention of both ceremonies would thus be to ensure the future reincarnation of the individual by quickening the little totem center the home of his disembodied spirit with a vital portion of himself that portion whether the foreskin or the blood was in a manner seed sown to grow up and provide his immortal spirit with a new body when his old body should have mouldered in this dust knocking out of teeth in australia perhaps practised for the same purpose perhaps the same theory may serve to explain another initiatory rite practised by some of the australian aborigines namely knocking out of teeth this is the principal ceremony of initiation amongst the tribes of eastern and southern australia and it is often practised though not as an initiatory rite by the central tribes with whom the essential rites of initiation are circumcision and subincision on the hypothesis here suggested we should expect to find the tooth regarded as a vital part of the man which was sacrificed to ensure another life for him after death the durability of the teeth compared to the corruptible nature of the greater part of the body might be a sufficient reason with a savage philosopher for choosing this portion of the corporeal frame on which to pin his hope of immortality the evidence at our disposal certainly does not suffice to establish this explanation of the right there are some facts which seem to point in this direction in the first place the extracted tooth is supposed to remain in sympathetic connection with the man from whom it has been removed and if proper care is not taken of it he may fall ill with some victorian tribes the practice was for the mother of the lad to choose a young gum tree and to insert her son's teeth in the bark at the fork of two of the topmost boughs even afterwards the tree was held in a sense sacred it was made known only to certain persons of the tribe and the youth himself was never allowed to learn where his teeth had been deposited when he died the tree was killed by fire thus in a fashion the tree might be said to be bound up with the life of the man whose teeth it contained since when he died it was destroyed further among some of the central tribes the extracted tooth is thrown away as far as possible in the direction of the spot where the man's mother is supposed to have had her camp in the far-off legendary time which is known as the alcaringa may not this be done to secure the rebirth of the man's spirit in that place in the gnanji tribe the extracted tooth is buried by the man's or woman's mother beside a pool for the purpose of stopping the rain and increasing the number of water lilies that grow in the pool extraction of teeth associated with the rain thus the same fertilizing virtue is ascribed to the tooth which is attributed to the foreskin severed at circumcision and to the blood drawn at subincision why the drawing of teeth should be supposed to stop rain i cannot guess curiously enough among the central tribes generally the extraction of teeth has a special association with rain and water thus among the arunta it is practised chiefly by the members of the rain water totem and it is nearly if not quite obligatory on all the men and women of that totem whereas it is merely optional with the members of the other clans further the ceremony is always performed among the arunta immediately after the magical ceremony for the making of rain in the warramunga tribe the knocking out of the teeth generally takes place towards the end of the wet season when the water holes are full and the natives do not wish any more rain to fall moreover it is always performed on the banks of a water hole the persons to be operated on entering the pool fill their mouths with water spit it out in all directions and splash the water over themselves taking care to wet thoroughly the crown of the head immediately afterwards the tooth is knocked out the chingili also knock out teeth towards the close of the wet season 
when they think they've had enough of rain. The extracted tooth is thrown into the waterhole, in the belief that it will drive rain and clouds away. I merely note, without attempting to account for, this association between the extraction of teeth and the stopping of rain. Extraction of tooth used to determine a man's country in Tutum. The natives of the Cape York Peninsula in Queensland use the extraction of the tooth to determine both a man's totem and the country to which he belongs. While the tooth has been knocked out, they mention the various districts owned or frequented by the lad's mother, her father, or other of her relatives. The one which happens to be mentioned at the moment when the tooth breaks away is a country to which the lad belongs in the future, that is, the country where he will have the right to hunt and to gather roots and fruits. Further, the bloody spittle which he ejects after the extraction of the tooth is examined by the old men, who trace some likeness between it and a natural object, such as an animal, a plant, or a stone. Henceforth, that object will be the young man's ari or totem. Some light is thrown on this ceremony by a parallel custom which the natives of the Pennyfather River in Queensland observe at the birth of the child. They believe that every person's spirit undergoes a series of reincarnations and that during the interval between two successive reincarnations the spirit stays in one or other of the haunts of Angia, the being who causes conception in women by putting mud babies into their wombs. Belief in reincarnation among the natives of the Pennyfather River in Queensland. Hence, in order to determine where the new baby spirit resided, since it was last in the flesh, they mention Angia's haunts, one after the other, while the grandmother is cutting the child's navel string and the place which happens to be mentioned when the navel string breaks is a spot where the spirit lodged since its last incarnation, that is, the country to which the child belongs. There he will have the right of hunting when he grows up. Hence, according to the home from which the spirit came to dwell among men, a child may be known as a baby obtained from a tree, a rock, or a pool of fresh water. And Gia, with whom the souls of the dead live till their time comes to be born again, is never seen but you may hear him laughing in the depths of the woods, among the rocks, down in the lagoons, and among the mangrove swamps. Hence we may fairly infer that the country assigned to a man of the Cape York Peninsula at the extraction of his tooth is one where his spirit tarried during the interval which elapsed since his last incarnation. His totem, which is determined at the same time, may possibly be the animal, plant, or other natural object, in which his spirit resided since its last embodiment in human form, or perhaps rather in which a part of his spirit may be supposed to lodge outside his body during life. The latter view is favoured by the belief of the tribe of the Painfather River, whose practice at childbirth so closely resembles that of the Cape York natives at puberty. For the Painfather people hold that during a man's life, a portion of his spirit lodges outside of his body in his afterbirth. However that may be, it seems probable that among the Cape York natives, the custom of knocking out the tooth is closely associated with a theory of reincarnation. Perhaps the same theory explains a privilege enjoyed by the Camilleroti tribe of New South Wales. They claim a superiority over the surrounding tribes, and enforce their claim by extracting from them the teeth knocked out of puberty. The extraction of this tribute might have passed for a mere assertion of suzerainty, were it not that the Camilleroti knocked out their own teeth also. Perhaps the extracted teeth were believed secured to their present possessors a magical control over their former owners, not only during life but after death, so that armed with them the Camillaroi could help or hinder the rebirth of their departed friends or enemies. Australian initiatory rights meant to serve cure rebirth. 
Thus, if I am right, the essential feature in all three great initiatory rites of the Australians is the removal of a vital part of the person which shall serve as a link between two successive incarnations by preparing for the novice a new body to as his spirit when its present tabernacle shall have been worn out. Certain funeral rites also intended to ensure reincarnation. Now, if there is any trouble in this suggestion, we should expect to find that measures to ensure reincarnation are also taken at death and burial. This seems in fact to be done, for in the first place the practice of pouring the blood of kinsmen and kinswomen into the grave is obviously susceptible of this explanation, since in accordance with the Australian usages which I had cited, the blood might well be thought to strengthen the feeble ghost for a new birth. Australian funeral ceremonies intended to ensure the reincarnation of the dead. The same may be said of the Australian custom of depositing hair with the dead, for it is a common notion that the hair is the seat of strength. Again, it has been a rule with some Australian tribes to bury their dead on the spot where they were born. This was very natural if they desired the dead man to be born again. Further, the common Australian practice of depositing the dead in trees may, in some cases at least, have been designed to facilitate rebirth, for trees are often the places in which the souls of the dead reside, and for which they come forth to be born again in human shape. Thus the Unmatjara and Katish tribes bury very aged women and decrepit old men in the ground, but the bodies of children, young women and men in the prime of life are laid on platforms among the boughs of trees. In regard to children, we are definitely told that this is done in the hope that before very long its spirit may come back again into the body of a woman, in all probability that of its former mother. Further, the Arunta, who bury their dead, are careful to leave a low depression on one side of the mound, in order that the spirit may pass out and in, and this depression always faces towards the dead man's or woman's camping ground in the Alcaringa, or remote past, that is the spot which he or she inhabited in spirit form. Is not this done to let the spirit rid itself of its decaying tabernacle and repair to the place where in due time it will find a new and better body? In this connection, the final burial rites in the Binbinga, Aluna, and Maro tribes are worthy of remark. Among these people, the bones of the dead are, after a series of ceremonies, deposited in a hollow log on which the dead man's totem is painted. This log is then placed with the bones in the boughs of a tree beside a pool so that, if possible, it overhangs the water. For about three wet seasons, the father and son of the deceased, who placed the log there, are alone allowed to eat water lilies out of that pool, and no woman is permitted to go near the spot. There the bones of the dead men remain, till the log rots and they fall into the water, or are carried away by a flood. When the burial rites are all over, the spirit of the deceased returns to its mungai spot that is, to the place where it dwells in the interval between two successive incarnations. Sooner or later it will be born again. These rites seem, therefore, clearly to be a preparation for the new rebirth. Belief in reincarnation and measures taken to secure it among other peoples. As the belief in reincarnation is shared by many peoples besides the Australians, it is natural to suppose that funeral rites intended to facilitate the rebirth of deceased may be found in other parts of the world. Elsewhere I have cited examples of these rites. Here I will add a few more. It is especially the bodies of dead infants which are the object of such ceremonies, for since their lives have been cut prematurely short, 
it seems reasonable to give their souls a chance of beginning again and lengthening out their existence on earth to its natural close reincarnation among the back issue of mont Aigon. but it is not always dead babies only whom the living seek thus to bring back to life for example we read that round about mount elgon in east africa the custom of throwing out the dead is universal among all the clans of Bagushu, except in the case of the youngest child or the old grandfather or grandmother, for whom, like the child, a prolonged life on earth is desired. When it is desired to perpetuate on the earth the life of some old man or woman, or that of some young baby, the corpse is buried inside the house or just under the eaves until another child is born to the nearest relation of the corpse. This child, male or female, takes the name of the corpse, and the Bagushu firmly believe that the spirit of the dead has passed into this new child and lives again on earth. The remains are then dug up and thrown out into the open. Reincarnation among the tribes of the Lower Congo Similarly, among the tribes of the Lower Congo, a baby is always buried near the house of its mother, never in the bush. They think that if the child is not buried near its mother's house, she will be unlucky and never have any more children. It is believed that the only new thing about the child is its body. The spirit is old and formerly belonged to some deceased person, or it may have the spirit of some living person. They have two reasons for believing this. The child speaks early of strange things the mother has never taught. It's so that they believe the old spirit is talking to the child. Again, if the child is like its mother, father or uncle, they think it has the spirit of the person it resembles, and that that person will soon die. Hence a parent will resent it if you say that the baby is like him or her. Thus it appears that the argument for the pre-existence of the human soul, which Plato and Wordsworth drew from reminiscence, is fully accepted by some Negro tribes of West Africa. Reincarnation in India In the Bilaspur district of India, a stillborn child, or one who has passed away before the Chati, the sixth day, the day of purification, is not taken out of the house for burial, but is placed in an earthen vessel, a gara, and is buried in the doorway or in the yard of the house. Some say that this is done in order that the mother may bear another child. It is said that among the Khans of India, on the day after a death, some boiled rice and a small fowl are taken to the place where the body was burned. There the fowl is split down the breast and placed on the spot, after which it is eaten and the soul that departed is invited to enter a newborn child. On the fifth day after the death, the Gons perform the ceremony of bringing back the soul. They go to the riverside and call aloud the name of the deceased. Then they enter the river, catch a fish or an insect, and take it at home, place it among the sainted dead of the family, believing that the spirit of their lost one has thus been brought back to the house. Sometimes the fish or insect is eaten in order that the spirit which it contains may be born again as a child. Reincarnation among the Hurons when a baby died within a month or two of birth, the Hurons did not dispose of its little body, like those of grown people, by depositing it on a scaffold. They buried it beside the road in order, so they said, that the child might enter secretly into the womb of some woman passing by and be born again into the world. Reincarnation among the ancient Greeks Some of the ancient rules observed with regard to funerals in the Greek island of Sios have been ingeniously explained by Mr. F. B. Jevons as designed to secure the rebirth of the departed in one of the women of the family. 
the widespread custom of burying the dead in the house was perhaps instituted for the same purpose and the ancient greek practice of sacrificing to the dead man at the grave on his birthday may possibly have originated in the same train of thought for example sacrifices were annually offered on their birthdays to hippocrates by the koans to aratus by the sicyonians and to epicurus by his disciples rights to procure the rebirth of edible animals and plants now too we can fully understand the meaning of the bloody ritual and the ceremonies for the multiplication of the totem animals and plants we have seen that a strengthening and fertilizing virtue is attributed to human blood what more natural than it should be poured out by the men of the totem on the spot in which the disembodied spirit of the totem animals or plants are waiting for reincarnation clearly the rite seems intended to enable these spirits to take bodily shape and be born again in order that they may again serve as food if not to the men of the totem clan at least to all the other members of the tribe later on we shall find that the attempt to reincarnate the souls of dead animals in order that their bodies may be eaten over again is not peculiar to the australian savages but is practised with many curious rites by peoples in other parts of the world general theory of intertuma and initiated rites in australia to sum up briefly the general theory to which the foregoing facts have thus far led us i would say that just as the intichuama tribes of the australians are for the most part magical ceremonies intended to secure the re-embodiment of the spirits of edible animals and plants so their initiatory rites may perhaps be regarded as magical ceremonies designed mainly to ensure the reincarnation of human souls now the motive for procuring the rebirth of animals and plants is simply the desire to eat them cannibalism in australia may not this have been one of the motives for attempting to resuscitate the human dead it would seem so for all the tribes of the gulf of carpentaria who have been examined by spencer and gillen eat their dead and the ceremonies and traditions of the arunted indicate that their ancestors also ate the bodies of their fellow tribesmen in this respect the practice of the binbinga tribe is particularly instructive for among them the bodies of the dead are cut up and eaten not by men of the same tribal subclass as the deceased but by men belonging to the subclasses which compose the other intermarrying half of the tribe this is exactly analogous to the practice which at present prevails as to the eating of the totem animal or plant among all these central and northern tribes among them each clan that has an edible animal or plant for its totem is supposed to provide the animal or plant for all the other clans to eat and similarly among the bimbinka the men of any particular subclass do actually provide their own bodies for the members of the other intermarrying half of their tribe to devour and just as in the far past the members of a totem clan appear to have subsisted regularly although not exclusively and perhaps not even mainly on their totem animal or plant so at a remote time they seem regularly to have eaten each other thus the wild dog clan of the aranta has many traditions that their ancestors killed and ate wild dog men and women such traditions probably preserve a true reminiscence of a state of things still more savage than the present practice of the binbinga at that more or less remote time if we may trust the scattered hints of custom and legend which are the only evidence we have to go upon the men and women of a totem clan in defiance of their customs at a later age regularly cohabitate with each other ate their totems and devoured each other's dead bodies in such a state of things there was no sharp line of distinction drawn 
either in theory or in practice, between a man and his totem. And this confusion is again confirmed by the legends, from which it is often difficult to make out whether the totemic ancestor spoken of is a man or an animal. And if measures were taken to resuscitate both, it may well have been primarily in order that both might be eaten again. Australian totemism, not a religion. The system was thoroughly practiced in its aim, only the means it took to compass its ends were mistaken. It was in no sense a religion, unless we are prepared to bestow the name of religion on the business of the grazier at the market gardener, for these savages certainly bred animals and plants, and perhaps bred men for much the same reasons that a grazier and a market gardener breed cattle and vegetables. But whereas the methods of the grazier and market gardener rest upon the laws of nature, and therefore do really produce the effects they aim at, the methods of these savages are based on a mistaken conception of natural law, and therefore totally fail to bring about the intended result. Only they do not perceive their failure. Kindly nature, if we may personify here for a moment, draws a veil before their eyes, and herself works behind the veil whose wonders of reproduction which the poor savage vainly fancies that he has wrought by his magical ceremonies and incantations. Present function of totemism in Central Australia In short, totemism, as it exists at present among these tribes, appears to be mainly a crude, almost childlike attempt to satisfy the primary wants of man, especially under the harder conditions to which he is subject to the deserts of Central Australia, by magically creating everything that a savage stands in need of, and food first of all. But to say so is not to affirm that this has been the purpose, and the only purpose of Australian totemism from the beginning. That beginning lies far behind us in the past, and is therefore necessarily much more obscure and uncertain than the function of totemism as a fully developed system to which alone the preceding remarks are applicable. Our examination of the magical rites performed by the Australians for the maintenance of the food supply has led us into this digression. It is time to pass to ceremonies practiced for the same purpose and on the same principles by our peoples in other parts of the world. End of section 4